Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And once again, welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 213. Well, for those of you that followed the content on my social media channels and Merido Golf Club's social media channels, or perhaps you watched the live broadcast on the Golf Channel, I don't think anyone could have asked for a better start to the college golf season. Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona State paired together in the final group on the final day. Just star power all over the place. Logan McAllister, Chris Goderup from the Sooners. You got Cole Hammer and the Cooties from Texas. Summer Hayes, Sisk, Riggs Johnson from Arizona State. An incredible finish. Cameron Sisk captures the individual title in the playoff. And then Oklahoma edges out Texas by a stroke for the team title. The tournament was full of excitement. Merido looked absolutely incredible. They have fully recovered from the winter freeze earlier this year that decimated the golf course. Just a hugely successful event for everyone involved. As always, uh, gosh, I've been at Merido so many times. The great people there that have supported the back of the range by inviting me back time after time again to cover tournaments. Can't thank them enough. The entire family at Merido, just they're incredible people. I don't know what else to say. I tried to bring some of that mojo up to Chattanooga with me for the Scenic City Collegiate held at the Honors Course. Incredible facility, lots of great teams in the field. Georgia, Vanderbilt, Ole Miss, Clemson, Tennessee, just to name a few. And, well, it rained. It rained a lot. It rained so much that the tournament was canceled. So that was a real big disappointment to get all the way up there and no tournament. But, you know, got to look at the silver lining. I got to meet a lot of good coaches reconnect with some of the players that I followed for quite some time. Not all was lost and uh, got some kind of some good ideas about some other tournaments that I might need to check out later this year or even in 2022. So all good. These things happen. Special shout out to my buddy, Ryan Frazier. Make sure you are following him on Twitter at Agora Golf. That's A-G-O-R-A Golf, Agora Golf. He helped me get out of Chattanooga, get down to Atlanta to catch a flight home. Uh, solid guy. Definitely owe him a dinner at Colonial. Speaking of Colonial, yes, I'm going back out on the road in a little over a week back to the Dallas-Fort Worth area for the Colonial Collegiate. This might just be the best field in college golf this year. So I'm not going to miss this one. So again, as a reminder, make sure you're following on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. If you need the links, go to the website thebackoftherange.com. As you all know, this is Ryder Cup week. The Europeans will be looking to retain the cup on foreign soil. Now, the last time that the Americans accomplished this feat was way back in 1993. Just to refresh your memory, we won the Ryder Cup in 91 at Kiowa Island, and then we went over to the Belfry in 93 and retained it. My guest on this episode was a member of that victorious U.S. squad in 93. Jim Gallagher Jr. is at the back of the range this week to talk about his Ryder Cup experience, his start in the game, the undeniable truth that he is not the best golfer in the Gallagher household, and we also talked a bit about junior golf. Now, he's won multiple times in the PGA Tour. He's doing phenomenal work at Golf Channel, and he also has his own podcast. I mean, it's like Jim and I, we're the same person. Jim is the host of the Only One Shot Golf Podcast, 
He has incredible guests that join him each and every week. They talk about everything around the junior golf space. He has college coaches, former players, really a great collection of guests. So make sure you check out the show notes of this episode because I put in a link on how you can find Jim's podcast. So make sure you check that out. Don't forget, keep following on social media. Lots of cool announcements on the way. Excited to share some really, really exciting news with you. But for now, let's get this episode started. Jim, welcome to the back of the range. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for having me on today. Looking forward to our chat. and uh, We'll try to keep it simple and uh, long-winded as I normally am. Yes. I like to talk, as you know. I love it. I love it. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm just going to be kind of... Um, I don't feel like I'm going to be pulling a lot of weight on this episode. I mean, I got a, I got a, you know, PGA tour, uh, you know, veteran, multiple time winner, a Ryder cupper, analyst, a podcaster. I don't even need to be here. I'm just going to hit record, go get a sandwich and I'll come back and we'll be done. Right. Well, something like that, you know, that's one thing somebody said, you know, what a theory I get to talk and get paid to talk something I do pretty good. Uh, it, but when you get to 60 years old, you just hope somebody listens to you at this point. Uh, I think, um, I think we can find some people to listen to the stories that, that you're going to be able to share. I don't, I don't think there's going to be any problem with that. Um, you just got back. I know, you know, we're going to talk about your, your work that you're doing at the golf channel right now, whether it's in a studio or it's on a golf course, but um, you know, we've bumped into each other at the U.S. Women's Am and then the U.S. Amateur in Oakmont. And then that was the my last leg of my trip. But you kept going and you just got back from the Solheim Cup. I mean, gosh, anytime you get to play for your country. What was your experience and your takeaway before we talk about your career? Talk to me about your experience and takeaway from this year's Solheim Cup in Inverness. Well, I thought the golf course presented itself just awesome. It's a great golf course. And I thought it was perfect for the ladies. Uh, you know, going into it, I would say probably three months ago, Europe didn't look like they had a very strong team. And then all of a sudden, three months later, uh, their players start winning, start playing well. And when they came in, now this is, I mean, it's easy to say it afterwards, but I felt like Europe was going to be tough to beat. I know another, a lot of people say, hey, the Americans are on home soil. There won't be many fans because of travel restrictions. And, and that was true. Uh, but, you know, it's something about the Europeans. They, they embraced the underdog role, whether it's in the Ryder Cup or whether it's in the Solheim Cup, they've always embraced that kind of, I'm the underdog, uh, and, and, and they run with it. And you know what? They played great. It was, uh, they got off to that great start the first day, got the Americans down. There were a lot of people there. It was really kind of a cool atmosphere with the amphitheater. They used number one and 10, which are next to each other, but they actually teed off in the same spot, which oh, was really? right in the middle of the amphitheater. Yeah. So that was really cool. Uh, and it's actually a little putting green between one and 10 T, but they used that as a T box. And, and, uh, that was really a cool concept coming out there. So, you know, you had all these thousands of people there and, and, and all that, but, uh, second day afternoon, they kind of made a rally, a few more fans, but I'm telling you on Monday, the final day, there were so many people out there. Uh, it was just unbelievable. The atmosphere was really good, but it got quiet. And for yeah. the Europeans, that's what they want. And I think that happened. They got off to the, you know, a lot of blue on their side and, and they played great and they, and they played good enough to win. Uh, and, and they, they're a good team. They got a lot of good players. And that's the, the thing about, I don't know so much the Ryder cup, but more on the Solheim cup, most of them are LPGA members and they're friends. And in that one week, they're not. And now they're back to friends. So there was, you know, some rules, controversy, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But overall, they're friends, and and the bottom line is golf won again. Women's golf was promoted in a great way. 
And, and I was just honored to be part of it and, and a small part of it sitting out there watching some good golf uh, the whole week. Yeah, I, I saw the rules controversy. Um, and I don't know, part, you know, you really don't want any sort of issues like that. And it's just so crazy how whenever there's any sort of rules controversy or anything of that nature, you know, someone, it always sparks so much media attention. I, I wish that wouldn't happen because it, it just feels like you're going after, it almost feels like clickbait trying to get attention into a really great event. And they're going after something very, very minute that is like, hey, these things happen. I'm sure it was not intentional. Um, I just hate seeing things like that happen and, and really the marquee event for, for women's golf uh, every two years. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, there was a rules meeting. They all were aware of it that the official or the rules person can jump in and do that. And they were, that was brought up about picking up the ball or blah, blah, blah. And Madeline, and I know her personally, she's a sweet kid. It was not intentional. Yeah. She, she just reacted. I mean, and to Nellie and Allie's uh, point, they were just playing. They had no idea, you know, and, and Missy Jones, who's one of the best LPGA officials went by the rules she was presented with. I don't like the rule, but the, it was done correctly. The problem was, and we know what Twitter's like and social yeah, media, everybody has an opinion. And, and, and poor Nelly, she, she got abused for it. Oh, yeah. And, and so did Madeline. And I heard some guys, you know, walking up. That's the thing. You usually don't hear that at the Solheim Cup, but you would hear players like, hey, don't choke, don't embarrass yourself. And it was just like, like I don't like it in any, any of that. I mean, I don't mind cheering and having a good time. But I was close enough to Madeline when the guy said it. And I was like, really? Uh, and that's just not fair, but to, to their, all their credit, they came out, they presented themselves well, and it was a tough one and, and nobody won in that situation. Missy no. was in a bad spot. The players were in a bad spot. Uh, and fortunately it did not affect the final outcome. That's what I was concerned about. Sure. If it's a half point or a one point, then it really goes down. Uh, but they went by the rule they were presented with, whether you like it or dislike it. Maybe that's something that happens, but you know, I guess the rule is that when you're playing match play, let them get their own ball and, and go with that. But we all do it naturally. We don't even think about it when we're playing match play. And I think that's what Madeline did. And then to her credit, she came back that final day, which was ironic because she's playing against Allie Ewing, who she was with in the group. Yeah. Uh, and I know both those young ladies very well. I've known Allie since she's 10 years old. She played on the golf team with my daughter. And so for me as an announcer, it was interesting because I'm sitting there with two of my friends sure. and I've got to stay right down the middle. And I didn't bring up the controversy one time because it was over. It's yeah. a mute point at that point. And, and I think that's, that's the thing. Uh, and, and, and I hope everybody gets over it and they can continue because they're great kids. I mean, Nelly is a wonderful player and a good person. Same with Madeline and Allie. They, they really, you know, it was just an unfortunate situation. Yeah. And, and I think just to your point about match play, you know, professionals don't play a lot of match play. I mean, you've seen it mm -hmm. at the USGA events where it's U.S. junior um, I saw it a lot at the U.S. Junior at CCNC where you'd have officials pulling these two kids aside and, and kind of giving them like a, you know, a two or three minute, you know, kind of a reminder uh, of how to play match play. And you just you just don't see a lot of match play. So I can completely understand, even at the highest level, even a professional, not thinking about the intricacies and the rules of match play. So, uh, yeah, I'm glad that that was that, you know, that was a little blip and it's done. And we'll have to see if the U.S. can figure out a way to, uh, you know, go across the pond and, and, you know, bring that cup back to the United States. So, yeah, it was, it, it was, and like I said, it was great. It was well played by everybody. An official should never be the story, right, or even a part of the story. 
but in this case, that's where the rule fell in. And, and to Missy's credit, I mean, she didn't do anything wrong either, uh, but it's all going to go by the wayside and, and nothing was intentional. But when we look back at it, women's golf was put on a showcase. They did a great job with it, great fans, great support, and then I was just happy to be part of it. We're talking about women's golf. Perfect segue. Um, are you currently the best golfer in your house right now? I mean, are you even in the top five, top three? I mean, where do you rank right now? Jim Gallagher Jr., are, you're not even the best golfer in your in your household right now, are you? No, I told you that at Oakmont. That, uh, and the only reason I'm better than Elizabeth is she doesn't hardly play, and I can still get her. Yeah, and But she can out-hit me sometimes if she really gets on one, you know, but no, I'm, I'm going to say because Mary Langdon, my oldest, uh, qualified for the mid-am, so Shep pulled her up in the rankings. Kathleen just got done playing LSU, so she's obviously my wife's 112 state am. <laughs> Thomas, I can, I, I'm trying to think if I can beat Thomas, but he's his wife's having a baby this week, so he's distracted. I probably, he's, he's distra- we're, we're get him probably now. four and five. Okay. Yeah, we're four or five, and I and the grandkids are beating me now. So I, you know what? You just drop your ego at this point. You just go out there and, and try to enjoy it and and get used to getting beat. You know, it's no fun. I can tell you that I, I walk off, I shake their hand and I go back and say, I need to need to practice or just, I've taught them too much. I think that's the problem. That's, I've taught them too much. That's what it is. You got to stop sharing all this knowledge. Now, now you're a son of a, of a teaching professional. So you have this great start in the game up in Indiana and you had, gosh, you know, state am and state opens to your career and to your credit. And then obviously you go play collegiate collegially at the university of Tennessee have a great all American career. And we'll, we'll talk about, you know, getting in onto the PGA tour. But like I said, you know, just the household, I, I, you know, have this, just love the stat where Kathleen, your daughter who played LSU, you know, she wins the Mississippi state amateur state women's amateur, obviously in 2013. Then your other daughter, Mary Langdon wins it in 2014, where she beats Kathleen in the final Yep. Then, then yep. your wife is like, well, this is, I mean, I'll have enough, I, I'm, you know, done with this, you know, garbage. I'm going to get into the mix and I'm going to go capture another one. She wins her 12th the following year in 2015. And then Kathleen gets upset apparently and just wins it in 2016. So you're, um, this is kind of in that period where you've played a little bit of champions tour, but you're kind of tapering off your playing career on the champions tour around those four years. How's, when you look back at those four years, just, just as a, you know, proud husband and father. I mean, how much fun was that for you? It was a blast. Uh, and a funny story that when Mary Langdon, she was a soccer player and basketball player, and she played some golf around Mississippi, but not much. And then I guess, you know, through time, the doctor said, you know, no more soccer, your hip flexors can't take it, blah, blah, blah. I think she came up to me her junior year in high school, and she said, Dad, I want to play college golf. And I go, Okay. And one thing I did, and this is kind of a cool advice, and I don't know yeah. if you should do it. It's like paying players, but I to get my kids, it's like I didn't give them an allowance. But if they played nine holes, I gave them five bucks. If they played eighteen, I gave them ten. If they hit balls for thirty minutes, I gave them five bucks. So I, I went out there and I did that with with the kids. And for Mary Langdon, she was driven like that. And then I told her if she broke eighty, I double it. If she broke par, I double it. Well, four thousand dollars later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And, and you cannot con your way out of that. And I know that's a lot of money, but I was really stupid. That's why I don't gamble. That's a good reason not to gamble, but that was a pretty big allowance. So she went to college with $4,000 based on that. But I caddied for her when she played sissy. Uh, and I think it was the round, maybe the round of 16, first or second round. 
and I'm caddying for Mary Langdon and I get out there and I'm trying to encourage her and I'm telling her all the great things she can do. And I did say this and it must've been loud enough for Sissy to hear it. I think Sissy had about a three footer. I said, your mama ain't never missed a putt that long in her life. Oh and she misses God. it. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Yeah. I swear I was not doing gamesmanship. I was trying to convince <laughs> my daughter. So the next, the next hole they're playing, they got the same clubs and they're on a cart together. And my wife hits Mary Langdon's nine iron. Oh no. And you know, yes. And so we got to call it on her. And I said, Mary, nobody on the side that's watching this match knows this. So just go hit this close and we'll just go to the next key and not say a word. Oh, my Long God. story short, Sissy ends up beating her, uh, in a, in a extra holes. And I was so proud of Mary Lyman because that she took her mom all the way there. And, and Sissy looked at me and she was going to play in the afternoon. I said, so do you want me to caddy for me, for you? And she looked at me like, uh, no, oh my <laughs> so, gosh. that's a That's a crazy uh, dynamic though, where it, that's, it is. that's I've, I don't think I've ever heard that. I mean, that's, you know, you know, mother and daughter going at it at in a state. I mean, this isn't, you know, playing nine holes for whoever, loses has to you know do the chores and clean the dishes i mean this is serious stuff and i'm just thinking the dynamic in your household about that That, that's incredible well it was crazy because i mean and i'm the caddy and i'm trying to be a good husband because i know my wife can probably win it mary landon wasn't quite there yet in her skill level right but uh and 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 sissy wasn't really on she had had surgery done she she wasn't 100 percent, but nonetheless you know, when, when, in Mary Langdon, and it, for Mary Langdon, it gave her confidence. And I think that's why she ended up winning it two years later. She beat Virginia Grimes who played on the Curtis cup team her senior year when she was a senior in high school, which I was like, how the heck she do that? Yeah. But one of the dynamic, you know, the dynamics is when this, when I think sissy beat Kathleen, the one you said where she won her 12th, but Kathleen was playing really good in college. And she looked at her mama. She goes, if you're going to beat me, you better win tomorrow. Uh, and, and it's just, that's the dynamics of it. But when the sisters played in the finals, that's what was, that was even, that was almost as bad as mom and daughter playing. Yeah. Uh, cause everybody says, who are you cheering for? I said, I ain't saying a word. Man, if I were you, you know? I would find some sort of a pro event to play or get, call someone to get an exemption or get, get the hell out of there, Jim. I wouldn't even want to, I mean, I told, I told the superintendent I'd help break bunkers, you know, or go out, you know, weed eat or something before watching that but it it was and, and mary landing got the best ever and kathleen was so mad and she she actually hit a ball threw a ball off the green and i'm going like i've never seen kathleen show that kind of wow. uh you know just anger cause she never got mad but it was just you know that was cool uh to be all part of that and that like that that stretch but when sissy here's the story with sissy and i'm boring everybody with these stories but no you're not this sissy, this is what i want to hear about i mean yeah you played a writer cup no big deal but this is the juice right here i want this this is way this is way better all right so sissy sissy breaks her wrist in the fall it doesn't get any better doesn't get any better and so i guess april rolls around still not any better a month before the state am the only way she can grip the club, she normally overlapped. The only way she could grip the club was go 10 finger. Okay. And so she goes into that 12th, that when she wins her 12th that week with a 10 finger grip that she's only practiced. And I'm talking maybe six rounds and she wins with a completely different grip than she's ever played in her entire life. That to me was a feat that that's what we, we call her a freak. Okay. And she's just like, what do you mean? I, that's, that's freakish to be able to change your grip and maybe play five or six rounds. I mean, go from overlap to 10 finger and then win the state down. That was insane to me. Um, but mentally she's as strong mentally as anybody I've ever seen. 
And I think she was a, she was a big part of my success. How did you? Uh, How did I ever get her to marry me? That's the question. That, that of the was century. that's not the, that's no. I was gonna I was gonna be a lot more polite. I was gonna say, where, "How did you meet?" I wasn't going that. I mean, I'm still you know I'm 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 being professional here, Jim. I mean, no. How'd you meet? How'd you meet? Well, she actually played on the golf team at LSU with my little sister Jackie. Okay. And uh, and and I, they were all, just Jackie was always trying to fix this up. And then I guess I went up to one of the college events. I was still uh, just on tour because I'm about five years older than Sissy. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we just started dating. And the, the coolest part of the whole story is her mom had had ovarian cancer and that's not a cool story, but it's really, this is how our life has been. Sure. But she had ovarian cancer and, and they gave her like a 5% chance to live six months. And so I went in to visit her mom. I had lost my card and I'm in there. Not so much, but feeling sorry for myself, you know, and I'm in there and I'm, I meet her mom and here's her mom fighting for her life. And all she could talk about is me and, and just, how proud she was. She didn't even know me. She had just met me. And I was inspired so much by that lady that, uh, I can't tell you that just, it changed my life to a point where I went from feeling sorry for myself to like life's bigger than golf. And, and I think at that point, and then Sissy and I get married, I'm going to say probably, you know, maybe a year later or whatever, but her mom and her sickness. And unfortunately she passed away the week before the PGA which was a crooked stick in Indianapolis where I'd, I'd finished third yeah. or, you know, growing up there. Uh, and she just inspired me the whole time. And, and I knew, you know, with her, just her background there is just for 10 years, she fought that disease. She got to go to Augusta with us, but the, 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 the really a, an interesting thing is, so she passes away that week before, and I don't even know if I'm going to play in the PGA, you know, everybody's down and everything. And, and, her, and her dad says, you know, you got to go play. Linda wants you to play. And I'll be darned. I had never met Arnold Palmer in my entire life. Huge fan. Never met him. And I get paired with Rocco and Arnold Palmer oh. the first two days at Crooked Stick. And I'm telling you, it gives me chills to tell the story. And I thought to myself, Linda got up to heaven and she said, God, I got a request. I yeah. could see her doing it. Walking in and said, Jim's never met Arnold Palmer. His parents love Arnold Palmer. Can he get paired with him? And, and I'll be darned if I don't play the first two days with Arnold Palmer on a golf course I represented in my home state at the PGA, uh, which was a nightmare week before it turned into a dream week. Yeah. And, and just, just, you know, that, that's the story of, of, you know, people don't hear those things. Uh, and we all go through those things, but she was a big inspiration, not just for my own family, but just someone to just kind of turn my life around and put things in perspective. And sissy has been a huge part of that as well. And, and she's just like that. And that's, that's why everybody, I'm successful. That's why our kids are, uh, enjoy the way they do it. I, I don't know if anyone loves to play golf more than my wife and compete. She's now playing in a, in a Mississippi Southern, uh, I guess a senior am. Of course she uh, is. She says, I'm going to go play. So I mean, I was like, okay, you go play. I'm going to go do a podcast. There you go. All right. Well, um, I, I, you know, I'm starting to think I got the wrong Gallagher on this podcast. Um, you do, you I, do. Okay. All right. Well, if you can, if you know a way to hook me up, get, you know, get it in with the, with the real talent in the family, just, you know, see if you can make that happen for me. Um, what uh, now? Oh no. I, before we talk a little bit about your, your pro career, and then we're going to talk a little more current events, but, you know, you're, you know, you actually, like I said, you have your own podcast, you know, only one shot. It's really focused on, I mean, basically you're, it's a fantastic tagline, how elite discipline and gritty junior golfers are created. I love that line. Um, what was your experience and, and your wife's experience as not just parents, but golf parents, and then thrown into the mix that you both played professionally and have these great careers, but how do you maintain that balance between, 
okay, we're parents, we're sending our kids off to play collegiately. Now they're off. Now it's the coach's problem. You know, they're running, they're running the show on, on, on their team. How do you remain supportive, but also help? I mean, did you have any issues with trying to find that balance? I didn't have the, the issue with it. Sometimes coaches are intimidated by it. Right. Yeah, they yeah. shouldn't be because my, my wife and I are the two least, uh, you've been around me. I'm not real intimidating. <laughs> well, I am to the boys that try to date my daughters. That's a whole different yeah, that, story. That, I just that's going to be a bad mentally day. not yeah. stable. Yeah, that's a whole different animal. We'll go down that rabbit hole somewhere else. But uh, I just, you know, when I when, when Mary Langdon, like I said, when she went to school, she was kind of green, and 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 I just, you know, I just with the other, I, I'm a, I'm the parent that believes it's all about the kids, right? It's not about the coaches. And I try to when I and I when I do that podcast and I talk to these coaches, I say, guys and gals, here's the deal. It's like raising kids. If you're fair and consistent, my wife pushes this all the time. and She's so right. If you're fair and consistent, you can discipline them. You can get them to do anything. It's when you're not consistent and you're not fair is when you're going to lose them, whether it's your eight-year-old son telling him to do this or your 22-year-old senior in college. Uh, fair and consistency is the key to that. So what I would approach, I only went to like six or I only was able to go to a few of Mary Langdon's college events. I tried to stay out. I never got in the way of coaching. Now that coach may not agree. Uh, but if you ask the kids, if I, if, if getting involved is sitting next to a young lady, who's just shot 82 nearly in tears and you sit there and say, Hey, what's the feeling you got going out there? You know, tell me what you're going mentally. Right, and right. they say, well, everything is speeding up and I'll go here, slow your mind down, relax, go out and enjoy this. You've put the time in. Don't doubt your talents. Go. If that's getting involved, I'm guilty. Sure. But as far as, you know, Hey, put my kid in, never did that. Uh, and you know, I, we had a, one little incident, but it was, it was nothing to do with, it's just a whole nother story. I'm not going to get into that, but for the most part, I mean, if the coaches were smart, I'm not saying I know everything, but I've been there. Use me. And I even told them I'll help you anytime I have. I think when Kathleen was at LSU, I talked to the team, um, before they went out to their home tournament and, and it's basically, you know, I, I just sat back and watched, right. uh, did I get frustrated watching the kids? It's harder to watch folks and oh, everyone knows it's playing it. I, I mean, I, I wasn't the dad that hid behind the tree, but I was the dad that tried not to show the body language. Right. Uh, but the kids would always say, you always encourage this dad. You never, the only thing they would be a little frustrated is after the round, I, I needed to probably give them about you know, 10 or 15 minutes, we'd go sit down and then we kind of go over it in right. that way. But, um, you know, sometimes you don't want to hear that. I didn't want to hear it as a player either. Uh, but I, I don't think I ever, and I, I always try to sit back. I got, and I think the podcast has worked because I've got to meet a lot of these coaches. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the job has changed so much from when I was in playing, I was playing the recruiting process is so different oh, than yeah. when I was, you know, even when my girls were going through it, uh, it's changed so much and, 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 you know, they're building multi-million dollar facilities and now golf is on TV. The golf channel has it big expectations. It's big. Uh, and, and so it's just changed so much and it's, it's really been amazing, but as a parent sitting there, it's difficult. And it's like when my dad was my instructor and, and I always, you know, at the end, you know, he's 83, he was still teaching up until a few months ago. And it was like, dad, it was always hard to separate and you did a good job with it. Dad versus instructor. And wow. I think that was the thing that even with my girls, I always wanted them to know I loved them. 
it wasn't about how they played because playing good or bad does not define you as a person. Yes. And yes. I think that's, I think that's what a lot of kids struggle with. Uh, and I struggled with it. Oh, it's terrible. I struggled with it too. If I played well, I thought I could fly across the world. And then if I played bad, I was a terrible person. Yeah. And I, and I think that's the things you, you struggle with. And, 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 you know, when, when we came out there and you talk about how is an elite junior and elite junior or how is an elite player. And I asked that question to a lot of the guests on the podcast is, you know, it's an inner drive to be great. It's something that separates themselves from everybody else. And that's something that like we, we talk about the difference in, in my daughters, Mary Langdon is the most competitive. She's just like me. She's nice, but she would cut you to beat you. She would do anything, not illegally, but she would just grind it out to beat you. Well, Kathleen was more of a peacemaker, sweet, nice, and not as competitive. And that was her personality. And it's like I couldn't force her to be something she wasn't. So as a parent out there listening, you know, know your kids and know their personalities because they're non she still wants to win, but she wants everybody to play well. That's just that's fine. That's yeah. who she is. Or you get one that's gonna try to run you down to the end. That's their, you know, their makeup. So I think that's when coaches are recruiting kids. They don't always get to know that. That's the tough part. You can sort of sense that, but you can tell not just the way you can tell the way people carry themselves. I think when you talk to coaches and, and for the folks listening, they're looking to see how they handle different situations and someone who's not afraid to get in the battle. Uh, and, 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 you know, I think that's part of the things that make elite players that drive to be great, to be great. And I don't mean cheating. I mean, just driven yeah, yeah. and, and Tiger Woods, all the greats. And, and when you look at world number ones, some people want to be number one and are comfortable in that position, in that spotlight. And some are number one and maybe not. David Duvall, Nick Price, maybe not as much. Uh, but as my wife always tells the kids or, or tells a junior golfer or a college golfer, or someone wants to turn pro, can you live the life? And that's the biggest question you got to ask yourself. So you're out there by yourself. Can you be disciplined enough to get out? Whether you're in college, when you're a freshman in college, and or even on your first time on tour, to not maybe go out and stay out too late, and you know you got practice at six in the morning, can you be on tour and not get caught up in all the baloney, and stay focused on what you're doing? Because you can get caught up into that false sense of the world, and I think why I was successful in the little town we live in, in Greenwood, Mississippi, I go back to normal life where people struggle just to put food on the table. Uh, and I think that's part of why my perspective, and I go back to my mother-in-law, I had that ability to keep grounded even when I was on the tour, which is a fantasy world. We're playing for all this money and you're living the dream. And then you come back and you see people just struggling to put food on the table. Yeah, That's what kept me balanced. And I know I went off the, the subject there, Very but good. I think that's, I think that's, I think that's really Important, I think, for kids when they go from being a junior golfer where your mom and dad are telling you what to do, they're putting things in order for you, and you go to the – and I've talked to several of these kids that are players, and they said their first year, like, oh, yeah, we partied. We went out to two. We had workouts at five. All of a sudden, a week later, it caught up to me. I had to grow up as a person and figure out, yeah, there's times we can go out and enjoy my friends, and then there's times I've got to be more disciplined. And Because college golf is a job. It's oh, fun, yeah. but it's a job. I couldn't do it. I don't know. They get out and worked out at five thirty in the morning. You just lose to be there, and then you, you know, 
and then school didn't bother me. I, I, I didn't mind studying and working hard at school. Then you got practice and you got study hall and you do it all again. So you really don't have a social life. Then we throw in COVID like we have it. So the kids aren't able to enjoy college uh, as much as they had in the past. And hopefully we continue. But I think the biggest thing when a kid's looking for a school and, and you look at your coach and you look at the college and I tell them if it's really close and say you don't make a trip or two or you get hurt, what school would you want to go to if you didn't play that week or that year? Yeah. And which one would you be more comfortable with? And that's the advice I give them. And it, you know, you got to put your pros and cons. Uh, and I tell them too, I said, you know, when coaches are recruiting you, they're selling you and feeding you filet and, and lobster. When you get there, you're serving it and you may be cooking it. So it's part of the recruiting process. Nothing against the coaches. That's just part of the sale. It gets you there. Now you've got to, uh, you're there. It. Now you got to work yeah, for you it. Put the exactly. Work you, um, exactly. Yeah. You, you, uh, you know, obviously you this great career at Tennessee and then you turn pro, you go to Q school and, you know, it's, you know, we just got done with, uh, you know, the FedEx tour championship. And obviously we just talked, you know, I know it's tour championship is very important, but ultimately it's the th- these 30 guys are going to get into every major. They're getting tons of money and that's great for them. But the drama, you know, factors kind of low. And then we just talked about the Solheim cup. That was probably the biggest draw of this past weekend, but you know, corn Ferry tour finals are going on. These guys are actually getting their cards for next year. And you, you know, you, you're, like I said, you earned yours in 83 with, couple of your old uh, Ryder Cup teammates, uh, Azinger and Pavin. I know there's more, you know, there's more avenues available now to get to the PGA Tour, whether it's, you know, working your way through Latin America or the Forme or McKenzie, you know, even what Kepka did going to the Challenge Tour in Europe and coming back. Um, you know, there's more places to play, more ways to chase the dream. And, uh, you know, I know there's guys that didn't get on the, get their card this week, but, you know, they're going to be on the corn Ferry tour. That's not the worst place to be, but you had to go to Q school at TBC Sawgrass, which sounds like an absolute yep. nightmare. And I know it's, I know it's headquarters with PGA tour, but that just sounds awful. When you look back at that week, can you still look back at that week with any sort of comfort or fond memories or was it just an absolute, just nightmare? No, it was, in, it was interesting. There's a couple of cool parts to that. And in my story of getting on tour was not as easy. People look back as you struggled. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I got on tour three different ways. So I get out of college and I go to the, back then you could go to the regionals or the, I guess the, the qualifying site the, before you got the finals, they had the, you could go twice. If you missed the first one, there may be 14 spots in the first site and there's like seven in the second. Well, I missed the first one by a shot and I got a second try and I actually made it. That's this is the weirdest part of my life. I went to Madison, Mississippi at Deerfield country club and I got through it. I got one of those seven or eight spots. And then that took me to the finals at Sawgrass at TPC. The year before, they played Sawgrass Country Club and TPC. Talk about a nightmare. Yeah. Because Sawgrass across the street's tougher than TPC. Uh, and TPC Sawgrass had all the slopes and everything. And I actually had Craig Stadler's caddy from Augusta. And he caddied for me, you know, several practice rounds. And he doesn't show up on time for the fifth round. And I'm going, like, where's he at? Where's he at? Where's, where's he at? Doesn't show up on time. Well, my dad, who old senior, grabs the bag and says, let's go. And the guy shows up and my dad runs him off. My dad counted the last two uh, rounds with me, got me through it. I think I finished 26th. I never hit it in the water at 17. That was always a nightmare. Yep. Uh, but I got through and I said, oh, yeah, I got my card. Everything's great. Well, I only got in like one or two tournaments through May. And I went like, what the heck? I was Monday qualifying on the Florida swing because I'd only got in 
back then you, you, you reshuffled after the West Coast. Well, I think I only got in one or two tournaments. My first tournament was uh, at San Diego. I either shot 70-70 or 71-71 and missed the cut by a shot. I shot under par missed the cut by a shot. I went, oh, my gosh, I'm not ready for this yeah, big exactly. time show, you know? Yeah. And I think I played Pebble, so I played two events on the West Coast. Well, then I get reshuffled. I don't get in anything through Florida except that Monday qualify for Doral, make my first cut. But the reshuffle isn't until after May. Uh, and we had the infamous meeting in May at Houston. That was really, I guess, would have been my fourth event. And Jim Colbert's the head of you know, the board. And we just like, hey, we're not getting in. He goes, just play better. Well, that went over not real well with everybody. But you know what? To Jim Colbert's credit, he's right. If you play better, it takes care of everything. Oh, sure. But when you're not getting in, that's not helping you. Long story short, I finished the year out. But I think tour school for me, uh, just having my dad jump on that bag and finishing with me, uh, and, and I think the fifth round might've even got washed out totally. I'd already played 12 holes. And for some reason, back in those days, they'd wash out the whole round, which was crazy. Now it may have been more fair, uh, but it got washed out. I was still playing about the same. So I, I go, I had to go back to school, tour school the next year. And I missed by a shot or two. And I'm thinking, wow, this was crazy. I finished 149th on the money list. I can probably get in eight or 10 events. Well, they had what they call the tournament players series, which is what the corn Ferry tour is now. But there was only like six or eight events and the leading money winner got their card. I won two tournaments. And the first tournament I won was the Magnolia classic in the state of Mississippi. You're seeing where this is going now. I see it. Uh, And, and which is now the Sanderson. And I went again, I beat Kenny Perry. I beat Zinger actually in a playoff there in uh, Hattiesburg. And then the next, the next one I get is out in Albuquerque. I break Kenny Perry. And so I'm leading money winner, keep my card. I lose it again. And then I have to go back through these Monday qualifiers, long story short. And, and I get it back, uh, I guess in 88 and lo and behold, I kept it after that. So my story to get to the tour was not that easy. It went from tour school to leading money winner to Monday qualifying basically in a few exemptions at the end. And that's how I got established. And I met Sissy. So that's where it all went down. So when you look at it, I got through tour school. I won my first pro tournament. I used to come down here and do junior tournaments or junior clinics for the PGA guys. And now I live in the state of Mississippi for 31 years. So you wonder why your life goes in certain directions and God's got the plan for it. Well, that was my direction. It didn't seem like at the time, but what I learned a lot about myself is to keep grinding uh, never take anything for gra- granted. And I think that's what helped me finally when I started winning and being successful is those grinds before that knowing, Hey dude, you just Monday qualified like eight times, you know, or whatever it was. I even played some mini tour events and I mean, it, sure. it was, it's, it was, it was tough. And, and that, that's the only access you had. And basically mini tours are gambling with your yeah, own money, yeah, You're putting just, the money up and yeah. you know, and, and that's what, People see that these guys are making millions. My story is a little like Kepka's in a way. Yeah. To the point, of course, he's had a much better career, but it was that same kind of start. I think that's why I relate to him somewhat on his. That's why I think he's he's the way he is tough mentally is because he had to go over there. He had to learn to play all over the world. He didn't just get through tour school. You see guys, you know, come out of college with these great careers and they don't get out and they struggle. Uh, and, and the corn fairy tour is wonderful now for them. They've got access to it. I think it's probably a better test over the course of the whole year. And then you get the finals, uh, Q school was always different. It is the most nerve wracking, uh, you lose your mind type places. I mean, 
and it's once, it was once a year. Right. And I think that experience, it's sort of like the corn Ferry tour, the finals, the playoffs are sort of like that, but it's not. Um, well, the corn Ferry is a tour. I mean, you, you have a season long chase. You, you have something where you can work. It, it closely resembles the PGA tour in that, in that respect. I always looked at Q school. I mean, you know, you know it a lot better than I do, obviously, but I always looked at Q school where, you know, you, if you just get, you have to get hot at that time of the year and shoot the scores at a specific time or else you're back to the drawing board. Yeah. And I think another thing is you went, it was over a course of three or four different qualifying. So it could be over a five, six week period. Yeah. So when you were hot through the first stage, you may not have been hot in the second stage. I'll tell you a story. This is how crazy it was back when I, when you played and back then it was maybe $1,500, $1,700. And one of the cool things that, that for my career is when my dad was a pro at Machingo Mission Country Club back in Marion, Indiana, 35 members got together and put up a thousand dollars to sponsor me. And that's that I had money behind me knowing I had some financial backing. So you send in your 1750, whatever it was for entry. So anybody that had 1750, basically right. you could say you had a two handicap or less. Well, this guy shows up in a trench coat and walks into the pro shop and says, do y'all supply the equipment? Perfect. You know, and you're sitting, you're sitting there going like, do I supply the equipment? And, and, and I'm thinking, what the heck? And of course they send him home, but you've got stories like that. Now tour school's really expensive. Uh, and, and it's a completely different type of clientele going through it. You don't see that anymore. You could maybe see that in a Monday qualifying. Oh, I was just going to say uh, there's, pre-qualifying. There, there's, there's all that. There's, there's pre Q stories that are coming out lately about guys that show up and shoot 98, just, just to say yes. that they played in a, in a, in a pro, uh, event. Qualifier. yeah, they just want to, yeah, it's the dumbest thing ever. That's, but, but that's what you would find sometimes at tour school back in the day. Right. And I think when that guy showed up in the trench coat, <laughs> Without that's, clubs. that's about it yeah we got to shut that we got to yeah. shut this down just a little bit exactly red flag came up and they stopped that real quick yeah i was going to ask you just about you know obviously you're leading me right into just you know, as you said just the grind and getting yourself into a position where you can be successful you, you pick up a handful of wins and you're kind of off to the races and uh, you get yourself in in the conversation to uh to make a Ryder cup team and you know, I look back at those those Ryder Cups in the '90s. I mean, obviously '91 at Kiowa really just set it off as far as the the the, the fierce competition. Um, you know, '93, the one you played in, that's one of my favorites. Uh, you know, obviously '95 with with Landy Landy as a captain, and that just just at Oak Hill, that was just you know devastating loss. And then we, we can go on and on about you know Valderrama '97, the comeback of Brookline '99. But this this incredible '93 Ryder Cup over at the Belfry. I mean, I'm looking. If we look back, it really there's been three wins. That's actually the last time that the U.S. retained it on foreign soil. But really, the U.S. has won three times in the last 25 years. We have a three and yeah, you're right. three and twelve record. I know it's not an original question. I know it's something, but you know, you know, why does Europe beat the U S time after time? And some people say, well, you know, they're, they're just, they're closer. They have the camaraderie and they want it more. You've played in one, you've seen it up close. And then you're also in the business of, of talking about it and, and being an analyst with golf channel as a player. When people say, well, the, the Europeans want it more, I'm, I'm guessing it just drives you up a wall. I mean, do you have any thoughts on what would explain a three and 12 record over the last quarter century? The way I look at it back in, 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 I almost made the team in 91. My game probably wouldn't have been ready for that, even though I did finish good at the PGA. Uh, I wasn't ready for that atmosphere. 
uh, I think in 93, of course I went over there. It was, you know, born sold. Tom Watson was a captain, but Tom Watson was loved in England and Scotland. Yeah. I mean, loved. So I think that helped. Uh, but you know what I was amazed at and back then we were, my gosh, my team and I'd have to count it. I maybe I'm not, I think eight out of the 12 or seven out of the 12 are in the world golf hall of fame. Uh, oh, yeah, my that, team was, that team is awesome. I, I mean, here, I'll just read it off for people curious. 93, this is the USA team. Watson is the captain. Azinger, Couples, Kite, Lee Jansen, played as a rookie. He's coming in as the U.S. Open champion. Pavin, mm -hmm. Payne Stewart, John Cook coming in as a rookie. Davis Love the third coming in as a rookie. Uh, Chip Beck, you, and then this is, I mean, two captain's picks, Lanny Watkins, Raymond Floyd. I mean, get out of here. That team was insane. Any question? Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the cool stories is we flew over on, well, we actually went to the White House and we met President Clinton. And I think Paul had made some kind of remark that got out and whatever, long story short. We actually. That's surprising. That's surprising. Is, Paul Azinger yeah, would say something like Paul that. Paul made, uh, yeah, making a comment and Payne, and then Payne repeating it to everybody. Shocker. Um, shocker. Exactly. I love Payne. And Paul, both, you know, just love them both. But anyway, so we get down, we meet the president, and he says, this is true, I know you're not going to believe it, he says, would you guys like to go in the Oval Office? Wow, are you kidding me? Yeah. We actually, as a team, got to go in the Oval Office, sat in the chair. I'm not making this up. You could talk to any of the guys. We sat in the, in the Oval Office, and then we fly over on the Concord. I'm going like, this is like, this is the coolest thing I've ever been part of, yeah. you know? And, and Watson tells us they may have invented this game over here, but we perfected it. Damn. Well, I was ready to parachute out. I was going to say like kick a door down for the, for this guy, you know, I'm ready to jump off the plane. And so we get out, we play practice rounds and when they play the national anthem, I'm going to get to your question of why I think things have changed. You're good. You're good. But when, when they play the national anthem and, and I, I'm telling you, I, I respect all those military men and women out there fighting for us. God bless you. Because when they play that national anthem, if you don't get chills, you need to pinch yourself and figure out what's going on. And then I realized, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I'm thinking, here's this little kid from Indiana living in Mississippi. And the only thing that got me through is golf world had written their preview and they did all the scouting report, and they said that I had the heart of a lamb, and the Europeans would make chopped liver out of me. Oh boy, that was dumb. That was dumb because I got enough redneck in me. <laughs> uh, not that my mom and dad would appreciate me calling myself that, but I do. And I just it inspired me. So the pressure there was to prove, and I think that's how I approached my whole career as the underdog. And by God, you tell me I can't do it, I'm going to knock you on your butt and prove you I can't. That was my approach. I fought my confidence a lot. But when someone said that to me, then it would like all of a sudden I go into the psycho mind. So I think I entered it that way. Well, one thing that was cool about Watson is he told us, you prepare the way you would normally for the tournament. Here's our practice round times. You guys are in this force and blah, 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 blah. And so we prepared for the actual, you know, first round. I didn't play in the morning in foursomes. Right. And so I just slept in, did whatever. And I'm telling you, Lee Jansen and I, two rookies, go out together, yeah. which is like, what's he doing? You know, but he's the current U.S. Open champion. Yeah. Why wouldn't he send him out? Right. Duh. And we play uh, Peter Baker and Ian Woosnam. 
And I get on the first tee, and I'm telling you, it's real. When you say you don't know if you're going to get the ball on the tee, oh, my gosh. I don't even remember if it got on the tee. I may have put it on the ground. I don't know if my hands are staying steady long enough. But I actually played pretty well. Baker made 8,000 feet of putt, foot of putts, and he ends up making a 30-footer on the last hole. I've got it eight feet. He knocks it in. They beat us one up. Yeah. And I was like, <sighs> I was so shocked at the level how good the level was. And I think Watson told us that next night is expect the, unex- the level of play just how made, good it yeah, was. Yeah. yeah. Just how good these, everybody's playing under this pressure, especially coming from Kiowa where we had won. And it was really raw, you know, just walking and rolling. Well, they weren't any nicer to us over there. Oh, okay. I'm just going to tell you. Oh yeah. They weren't any nicer. If you're thin skinned, the Ryder cup, Solline cup president, that ain't for you. I don't know what, you know, that's not for you. You need to go play in the, you know, intramural league, something. But all I'm telling you is the next day, I don't know if I'm going to get to play. I'm hoping I am because I know how good I'm playing. Well, Corey Pavin and I play Sam Torrance and, 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 and Constantino Roca. Well, we beat them to death. Corey shoots 29 in the front. But what I don't get credit for is I shot three under the front. Yeah, good for you. Uh, <laughs> but I didn't count. Oh, no, no, wait. I did count on nine because I pushed him out of the way. I said, I'm making this putt first. Get out of the way. That's awesome. And so, I mean, it, but I was. I was enjoying the, the whole time I was embracing the whole thing. I was living on this cloud that I was like, man, this is so cool. You know, we win this, but we're behind going into Sunday. And we all, every night we'd go around the room and we tell, you know, how our experiences was. And, and, and I don't know. Sissy says, I know I'm not supposed to talk. I'm just a wife, but do y'all realize where we are and how much they love Tom Watson and how much this game loves Tom Watson? Tom Watson's not losing over here, guys. She said this. Not, we're wait, not wait, 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 hold on. She said this to you or in a team room? She says it in the team room. Hold the whole on. everybody. She goes, and then Chip, that goes, that's right, sissy. The will to win will beat mechanical breakdown every time. Like I was having out there today, you know, and it was just like, what the heck? I mean, all this stuff sounds cheesy, but for somewhere in the back, not that she was raw, raw. She was just telling what she thought. Yeah. I think a couple other wives may have said some things. But she just like said it, and I don't remember if anyone remembers it. I truly do. So I'm supposed to play Sam Torrance that night. We find out the pairings, but we hear he's got some kind of in, you know infected toe, and he may not play. And one of the Davis wives, or Robin Love, actually, we thought went into labor. We thought we were going to lose Davis to that, but everything was fine. But one of the other wives on the other squad were having some issues, and my wife, you know, since he was seven months pregnant, it was just like this is crazy. There's a lot going on. A lot going on. And you talk about behind the scenes. And so they come up to me and they said, now, Jim, be prepared because if Sam doesn't play, there's a name in the envelope. And I go, ah, oh, you guys put my name in the envelope. And they go, no, 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 no. Lanny Watkins put his name in the envelope. So, I go, do what now? So, so just, to, just to clear this up for people listening, because, I mean, you and I know exactly what you're talking about, but what happens uh, the night before the singles matches at the Ryder Cup is both teams will put a name in the envelope. So if there's any sort of an issue, any sort of an injury, somebody's sick, anything, they have predetermined who is going to sit out. So um, in this case, you're talking about Laney Watkins, and obviously he he puts his name in the envelope, and it's pretty well known that he did that because, hey, I've been here before. I've played in Ryder Cups. I was a cap- he was a captain's pick that year. So he says, let the guys that qualify have the opportunity to play in the singles. I'll go in the envelope. And then, of course, 
that's what happens. So just to make just a you know level set for people listening. So go ahead. So Lanny's in the envelope. No, no, that's good. You you explained it better than I would. They'd have been so dang confused. They didn't know what I was talking about. They did subtitles on the podcast, which is impossible. <laughs> uh, but they, but I get up there and I'm thinking I'm just going to go to sleep. No big deal. And I was just like I prayed. That I said, Lord, just give me the strength to do my best. That's all I'm asking. Win, lose, or draw. Just let me keep enjoying this. Right. You see the big leaderboard, and I'm telling Thomas, man, I hope I get to play Sebi. He goes, Oh yeah, you may try to be ready to play him. I said, No, I'm really want to. I said, This would be great. He goes, Okay, all right, whatever. All of a sudden, the ladder moves over. Little old man walks up, takes down Sam Torrance's name, puts it next to Lanny's, put me up against Sevy. And we're somewhere in the beginning third of the matches. And Tom looks over at me and goes, well, you got what you prayed for. I Damn. said, sure did. So I didn't have time to sleep on it. I had about two hours, maybe less than that, to go like, okay, this rock and roll. So I go to the range. Everything's normal. I see Butch Harmon. We're talking. We're yakking. My mom and dad are over there, my aunt and uncle. And Maria Floyd walks up to me. Raymond's wife. Now, Maria Floyd kept Raymond in line like nobody else could. She was the sweetest, but she was tough. She was tough on old Raymond. And everybody respected Maria. And she walked up to me. She goes, Jim Gallagher? I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, I just went in and put $100 on you to beat Sebi. Don't let me down. <laughs> and I went, holy crap. <laughs> this got real. I was more nervous to lose and have to face Maria than to lose. <laughs> oh, my God. And so I'm going like, yes, ma'am, I got him. And so I, I walk over and it starts to hit me what's about to happen. And, you know, it's big. And I told Sissy, I said, man, this thing now in the current Ryder Cup so huge. The amplitude, she goes, it was like that. You just don't remember it. I said, oh, okay. Oh, okay. I get on the first tee, introduce myself. Tom Watson, Lanny are sitting there. Bernard Gallagher sitting there for the Europeans. Yeah. I hit it down the left side. Somebody hits it offline a little bit. And I hear Gallagher holler at Seve. You'll beat him seven and five, Seve. Wow. These I froze. I, oh, my God. I froze, and I turned around to Lanny and Tom, and I said, his blank is going down. Damn. I'm taking him down. And so I went from nervous to like, oh, here we go again. You just told, called me out again. And I played really solid. Uh, I think I lost maybe eight. I think I'm two or three up going at the turn. And when you make the turn, I see Freddie over there uh, playing woozy on 18 and the crowd screaming, Savvy, Savvy. Right. Well, you know how the defensive backs get up in the middle of the game and start waving to the crowd to get them fired up? Sure. Shake. I, I start doing that like I'm some kind of a defensive back, you know, going to hit the quarterback. So you're like, egging it, you're egging them on. Bring it, bring it on, right. Yeah, bring it on. I'm ready for it, you know. And of course, TV doesn't have that on there because no. there's not as many cameras as there is now, thank God. Um, and I'm just, I don't know why I did it, but I did. And he kept getting it up and down and up and down. And long story short, I beat him on 16, beat him three and two. He shakes my hand and he had a tear in his eye. And I just knew how much it meant to him. But he was nothing but a gentleman with me. Uh, and I always heard the gamesmanship. Yeah. Sevy never did that to me. Never did it to me during the match. Was he intense competitor? Yes. Did he respect me? Yes. And I, I will always thank him for treating me that way. Uh, maybe he was trying it and I was oblivious to it. I have no idea, but right. he never to me seemed like he ever, he was grinding all day, just trying to get it up and down. Uh, and it was so much fun to watch. I loved, I got there with him two or three times and the things he could do. He, he was under a tree. I remember one time at the PGA camper and he takes like a two or three iron and hits it off his knees and knocks it up on the green. And my dad goes, you know, that was a two iron. I go, no, 
Yeah. He could do things like that. And, and for me to walk off there going like, Oh my God, I just beat maybe this, Europe's. Yeah. I just took their heart, you know, cause it was all blue. And at that turn at that time, I think chip had won his match. I had won my match and it started to get red, white, and blue. Uh, and I just remember like, wow, that was cool. And mom and dad were there and sissy and we walk up. Davis makes the putt. We win the cup or retain the cup or whatever, but we had won it. We retained it. Right. We had to run out and watch the other thing. I remember the celebration. They handed me the big champagne bottle and the I didn't magnum, know how to open the magnums. it. Yeah. That's not, yeah. A, it's not a twist off Jim. I'm just letting you know. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a screw in top. So no. I was like, this is issues. I handed the pain, of course, painting and John Cooker on the cover of golf world. Cause they have it on, uh-huh. uh, you know, shaking it up, which was fine. They deserved it anyway. But I mean, I remember them asking me at the end, I think Bob Trump, he was, announcer somebody who came yeah. up and he goes jim you know what was what was this for you and i said you know for me personally it proved that i could play on this stage and prove everybody out there in the world that i can flat play i don't know why i said that because that i may say that to you just kidding and you've right, been around me enough right. to know that it's just fooling around but i said that and i was just but i meant it it's just like and i got in the press room and just before he walked in the press room paul grabs my face it says you are no longer lamb chop, you know, from the <laughs> original article. You are now called killer lamb chop. Okay. Because I kind of tagged myself as I just call me lamb chop. So they were kind of teasing me, but he grabbed my face and said, Now you're killer lamb chop. They asked the story. They asked about the story in the press room and I just pretty much laid it on and, and, and told them what had happened. And then when I won the tour championship, it was listed killer it listed on the front page of the of the magazine, Killer Lamb Chop. Wow. The weird thing of it all, Jeff Russell, who I love he wrote the article and he is married to Molly Sullivan, who is the head of the off channel. Oh my God. Don't that's think the, right. Don't think. Yes. Don't think the world isn't small. So for you people listening in, do not burn a bridge <laughs> because that bridge will cave in and you'll be on it. So no that's the thing. I always have that on Jeff. And every time he sees me, he just shakes his head. He's he even just... told his kids, you know, he said, I, I wrote an article. I shouldn't have blah, blah, blah. Mr. Gallagher has been nothing but nice to me since. <laughs> wow. Wow. Um, God, that's so cool. Um, all right. So I obviously like, this is one of, as I said, this is one of my favorite Ryder Cups. I actually watched the highlights last night on YouTube. I'm actually going to put a link to the highlights, um, uh, on YouTube in the show notes of this episode. Cause it's, it's so well done. And you just see, you see some incredible shots and me as just a fan of this Ryder Cup. Uh, I mean, gosh, where do I go from here? So let's start with the play between Faldo and, and Azinger in the singles. I mean, Faldo makes a hole in one on 14. Um, just, just the incredible, you mentioned it, just the, the play was just so good. Obviously you played three matches, you had time to watch. And I think you were done. Uh, you were obviously done with your match with Seve before, mm-hmm. uh, you know, cause I think it was, I think Zinger. And, no, that was the match. Those were the matches we ran out to his and Raymond right, exactly, yeah. we wanted to win the cup. Yeah. Right. So you're watching, you're able to watch Floyd. You're able, able to watch Zinger and Faldo. I mean, what were some of the things you got to see out there after you were done and you actually got to actually, you know, decompress a little bit and watch and be a fan of this, in, this incredible stage. What were some of your memories of what you got to see at that time? That was the crazy part. We had retained it, but we wanted to win it. Of we course. didn't want to retain it, you know, and we were making this great comeback. I remember Paul telling us that Faldo, either after he made the hole in one or some point, while well, y'all got the cup, just uh, uh, there was a, on one of the holes, he goes, good, good. And he goes, you've all got the cup. And Paul gave him the putt. Paul goes, wait a second. <laughs> they may have retained it, but we hadn't won it yet. So it was kind of like, we still got to play. 
Um, and Raymond, you know, here's Raymond who's in his fifties, 51 years playing. old, 51 years old. Yeah. And he was, and that's the coolest part. And I would take this as, as one of the memories, not even just maybe those two matches, but the whole week, those veterans for that week. And maybe since then too have, and that's a bond you always will have for the rest of your life. And when I, and I'm, I did not answer your question about why I think they're winning. I'm going to answer it maybe in this. But there's a bond that you have for the rest of your life with those other 11 guys and their wives and caddies and all that stuff that forever. But those guys set you on that you're equal to them, that they're no longer multi-major champions. And right. you get the confidence like Raymond Floyd is pulling for me. Yeah. Or, you know, Lanny Watkins is pulling for me. I think when you look back at all those t- our teams, and I know it took about an hour to answer your first question. But I think when you look back there, Europe was just starting. They had four or five really good players. Yeah. And they would wear their guys out playing them every match. And they had some guys up and coming. Well, we were deeper. Yes. It's reversed now. Right. The game is a worldwide game. Europe now is as good as we are in a lot of parts of it. We may, during the season, win majors, blah, blah, blah. The game's a world game. Do the Americans... Do the Europeans want it more than the Americans? No, I don't think so. Right. I think this younger crew is tighter and closer. That's great. It's not a fraternity. It's who wants to win. Who wants, give me 11, 12 guys who want to win. I don't care if they're friends, enemies, but for that one week, they put their egos aside and they play as a team for one common goal. And that's to win the Ryder Cup. That to me is what it's all about. That I think is what Europe does. I think we're trying to get to that. I think we've overthought this whole thing with this, you know, whole crew they got of all the different things and task and, force and all and, that, stuff. and all the strategies, whatever your task force, whatever you want to call it, we're just searching for it. Make the putts. Make the putts when it counts. That's what's happened. These Ryder Cups have been close. Yeah. The team that wins makes the putts. So give me guys that can make putts. I think that's the biggest thing that they, they're, they're good. Give them credit. They're good players. They play well as a team for whatever reason. Uh, they've matched them up. I thought one of the cool things, McGinley might've been the best ever is they got time to put them together in their regular pairings to see how they would play, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, there's one thing, I don't know if you would play with your best friend any better than Obviously, you wouldn't want to play with somebody you hate. Sure, but if your if your games were equal, similar, and foursomes, foursomes the toughest format. We used to blow them away in foursomes. That's not the case anymore. They're good. Uh, we just, you know, I I don't have the answer. If it was, they'd make me the captain. But I think a lot of it is is give me twelve guys who want to drop their egos, no matter what. There's no drama. I think if you can keep the drama out. Uh, the captains this, this time around with, with, with Steve picking six people. And it's like, they either haven't made it on points, maybe not as playing as well. So you go down the list unless there's some reason you don't, I mean, get the guys that played the best. Those 12 guys have played the best for now an extra year. Uh, well, I guess they stopped some of the points, but just, you look at the guys that the current play is important. But we always made such a big deal out of picks. Well, usually the picks hadn't played good enough to make it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then we expect them to play in five matches. I think the thing is, what you got to remember, if you get the depths these teams are now, not everybody's going to play all five because that's a long week. I did it in the President's Cup, and I remember telling Zinger, 
I don't know if I can go anymore. He goes, I'm riding you till you die. Oh God. Okay. You know, and that was, Hey, all right. I got it. I'm, I'm, you know, so drop your ego, go play. I think, I think the teams now for the American team, I think they, they grew up junior golf a little bit. Friendly. There's going to be some drama. I'm not going to say there's not. Uh, but for that week, they just got to drop their egos and play for that one comment. And not try so hard. I think a lot of us, they just try too dang hard. I know that doesn't that sounds pretty simplified, but it's just, I don't think the golf course in Paris set up for their games. I think that was set up the other way around for them and Europe just played better. Uh, the, there is an element of home field or home golf course. Uh, I don't know if whistling straights favors, obviously favors big hitters or whatever, but when that crowd cheers for you, the, the biggest thing you got to pay attention to if you're a rookie is they're going to boo you and cheer against you when yeah. you miss a putt. Yeah. That's the unnerving part. And once you get over that and get used to the crowds and stay focused, because now you just got to, you got to just play your game. You got to play the game you can. And it's always amazing to see people who are robots get in the Ryder cup or even the Solheim cup, Brittany Altamari in the Solheim cup. is really a quiet, sweet girl, man. And she is fist pumping and going and going. Uh, you'll see probably Patrick Cantley doing the same thing. This pumping, jumping around, uh, you know, just, it brings the best out of everybody. And I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, these competitions, the level of play under the pressure is phenomenal. Yep. And if the person can get it done, that's the answer to it. I think great putting does it. I think that's that one common goal. Uh, and, and like you said, 93 is the last time we won over there. And I was on that team. That's just impossible to believe that, but it's a fact. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. What happens at whistling straights? Uh, you know, just, I, I think that the U S team, you know, even this young, uh, you know, the young players that we're going to have, I, I think you're right. We're kind of re, uh, you know, reshuffling and, and rebuilding as far as getting younger guys in there that maybe don't have as much scar tissue, obviously, um, you know, from, from previous losses, but yeah, the drama, I mean, I don't know how, you know, obviously the, you know, how the media is, there's gonna be a lot of focus on Brooks and Bryson. Doesn't matter what the issue is. There's going to be, there's gonna be focus on it. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, players are going to need to fight past that. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I, I think it'd be interesting to, I mean, not call me crazy, but I say, put them both together and say, Hey, um, you know, you know, leave your egos. And, you know, if you do something stupid and you're not really fighting for, for the cup and fighting for this team, it's going to be pretty evident because you're going to be on that stage together. I'd be a really quick way to squash that. I, I think, and I love Steve Stricker. I think he's one of the finest men that, that's played the game. Uh, and, and I think for me, Tom Watson was respected by so many people that, and I think he had the advantage of having veterans who would give him advice. Tom still made the decision because you're not going to tell Tom one way or the other, but I think he had that advantage. I think we kept for years going with the same old crew. Yeah, and the the fear of oh send a rookie out there. Well, my God, they've won two. You know, they've won a major. They've won this. I mean, they're not rookies. It's not like they've never played the game. Yeah, they're new to this atmosphere. But sometimes, if a rookie approaches like, hey, no one expects me to do anything. I'm just going to go out and have fun and kick butt. Yep, that's how you have to approach it. That's how I approached it. But I think the Bryson and and the Kepka thing is going to be. It's going to be talked about. It's yep. how do they handle it? I, I don't have the answer other than I tell them, boys, grow up. Let's make this for this week. Y'all fight next week. Yep. But kiss and make up this week and let's go. Yep. You know, uh, that's my advice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm there. I didn't want to move past this, but uh, I mean, 
you know, obviously Phil wins the PGA Championship. A lot of people probably thought he was going to be a shoe to make the team, but really he just, you know, he's, he's going to be vice captain. His play this summer obviously has suffered and he's not going to be playing. But when we talk about Ray Floyd, uh, please tell me, other than the, obviously that's a great one about Maria Floyd, but please tell me you have a Ray Floyd story to share. I mean, I can't fathom what that must have been like to be in the team room with a guy like that. He just looks at you <laughs> and you're just like, he's like, okay. Yeah, yes. I, whatever you want. Yes, sir. Yes, you sir. know, don't let you down. You know, but, but no, it's like he went from this, like he could look right through you to looking at you and like, hey, man, you're a great player. Remember that. You can do this. I mean, he coached Freddie Couples for how many Ryder oh, Cups? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, but he had that ability and he dropped his ego at the door that week and became a team player. I'm not saying, I'm, I'm saying for any team, this right. is Europe or uh, you have to do that. You just have to do that. And if you got a young guy, put him with a veteran, you know, let him, I think that's why the pods kind of make some sense because personalities or whatever. But for Raymond, when he tells you you're great and you can do it, you believe it. I think that's the biggest story I take from that. Other than years after that, he would always invite me when we were out of his house and he was always kind to me. He's kind to me to this day. That's that bond. But when he looked at me and told me, you're a great player. Well, let's go out and do it. Just, I mean, that's, he, that's hypnotized the story. You, hypnotized you. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's like, why? that's why Freddie could walk across water with him. And Freddie was great, but for, he convinced Freddie that he could walk across the lake and Freddie tried, you know, and, you know, maybe get halfway and in sync. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just think that's a story with Raymond. It wasn't like he, he came up with anything specific other than, you know, I don't know this, but I, I remember, hearing things that when they were talking about the second day, who they were going to sit, not sit. And I think they went to bat for me because I was playing so well. I'd heard that. I have that, no idea if that's true, but the, the veterans, and I think Raymond was a big part of that. Like, Hey, I did two practice rounds where the kids playing good going, man, don't be, don't be afraid to do it. That I think is true. I, I wouldn't doubt that. I don't have, you know, I wasn't, like I said, I wasn't in that meeting or wasn't there with them, but sure. I don't doubt that, that Raymond told me. I remember the first time I ever got paired with him, I was so intimidated. It's like playing with J.C. Sneed. J.C. Sneed to this day loves me. Couldn't be nicer to me. Raymond walked off the last green at Hartford, shook my hand. and said, young man, you're going to have a long, great career out here. Oh, my God. Oh my you don't God. think that? Yeah, just, you that's just got it. knighted. That's got the knighted. Raymond story. You were knighted. Exactly. And that's, that's what I'm saying. My goal when I first got on tour is to play with all the veterans. Uh, and, and be paired with them. So I could, I don't know why I was trying to prove to them that I could play because they probably don't give a rap whether I did or not. Uh, but one thing my friend and my kind of mentor was Bruce Litsky. And this uh, needs to be on, this is, this is it. Because yeah. I, along with my wife, no one on tour had a bigger influence in my career and my life than Bruce. We were both on the Tommy Armour staff. He would include me. He's 10 years older than me. He would, we played every practice round because he didn't only play about 16, 18 right, events. Right, we right. played every practice round together, showed up at nine. And he always included me with the Curtis Stranges and all those guys of that era. And I always felt welcomed in there because of Bruce. And I remember him after the PGA and he beat me. He and I would have a contest for like in front of the Tommy Armour big convention. Whoever won had the bragging rights for a year. Well, I think I inspired Bruce's career to go longer than it did because he kept playing and he kept winning and doing this and that. And I remember him walking off and he beat me. It made this long cut at 18 to beat me at crooked stick. And he walked in the media room. I didn't see this till later. I just saw it again you know, a few weeks ago. 
and it said they were talking about me. And he goes, I always knew Jimmy was going to be good. I just hope he knows how good he's going to be because he's going to be a great player. I hate to say this, but he's the next big thing. Wow. When someone like that tells you that, you know, if I look back at my career, I should have won more. I honestly, I won five times. I should have won 10. I don't think I underachieved. I wish I'd known then what I know now. Right. I would, I would, and everybody could say that, but just the confidence or do a certain thing and get, and get upset with yourself. I wish I wouldn't have done that as much. My wife told me I'd thrown away four kids scholarships or four kids of college, you know, getting mad at myself, you know, and that's probably true. And that's not what we were playing for the money they're playing for. Now I would just get frustrated with myself and go two or three holes and go off the air uh, and then finally come back. But by that time you've already thrown shots away. So I think if I could have really taken Bruce advice, I did on a lot of things because he, he taught me how to be a good husband and a, a good dad and also be a good professional. And no one other than maybe Jack Nichols could do what he did as far as keeping and balancing family right. and, and golf like he did. And then, you know, when I got to see him, you know, before he passed away, it was just, uh, I walked out of just in tears. Cause I mean, this guy, you know, he took me in, he, he was my mentor other than my dad. He was as close a friend as I had out there. Uh, and, and it was guys like that that really kept me going and inspired me. Cause I did, I fought my confidence. People look at me now, they're thinking, oh, he's confident, but that's all front. Um, you know, it's, everybody's a little insecure in their ways, but I, I, the thing was when I got in, in, in the heat, I felt more comfortable in the heat trying to win than, than any other time during the week. Of course, when you're barely making the cut, that's more nerve wracking because you're not playing very well. Right. Uh, and, and you, what you got to remember and the advice I give anyone out there playing when you're in the heat, you're playing well, don't doubt that. You know, the, the easier, the tougher part is when you're barely making the cut and you're struggling. That's when you should, you know, that's when you're really nervous. Uh, and I think that's kind of the things I just watched him play. I watched how he played practice rounds. I watched how he managed himself, how he conducted himself. Uh, and I'll always be grateful for that. And I miss him dearly to this day. Do you think that the money out there is actually hurting players ability to go beyond themselves and just reach that next level? where the comfort of just knowing that a T25 is, is you know, still is paying quite a bit of money. I mean, I'm, I'm just listening to the way you're talking about, excuse me, I'm listening to the way you're talking about your relationships with the players and then how you just ever really, the game was elevated at the Ryder Cup. Is it possibly hurting the development of players to have that much money out there where if you're like 90th on the money list, you're still making over a million dollars, well over a million dollars? It, it could. I would say this tonight. My advice to the young guys out there: You think that money you're making now is going to last you forever? Well, I didn't. I lived a very modest life, and if you're living the high life, it's not going to last forever. Yeah. Uh, and I think when we get back to the the only one shot golf podcast and the elite player and what separates them, that's what separates the elite from the average. It's that person who wants to go the extra mile, but not trying to finish 25th. That wants to finish top 10, even when they don't have their best stuff. That's the elite player. The people who are driven like that are the ones that are succeeding like that. Yes. All of a sudden, 90 guys make a million dollars. Woo, I got life by the butt. You're one swing away from losing your card and never having that again. So you got to keep that in your mind. I always, I don't think you should play with fear because that's a little more of my personality, but that's kind of how I approached it is I don't want to go back to where I was. You know, I don't want to go back and try to, play the mini tours or go back and try to play the corn fairy tour. I, I think that's what separates the elite from the average is that person that doesn't 
is not satisfied with 25th, even though you may make, I looked at the tour championship. I think when I won it, I won 540. I think that was 26 place or something crazy like that. Yeah. So the, the money is crazy good for them, but I think it's that guy that wants to go that extra mile or that gal wants to go that extra mile to get to that next level because you can get complacent and you can have 20 million in the bank and maybe it is enough money forever, but it's not about that. It's your personal goals and what you want to achieve. And I wanted to be the best I could be. And the one thing you don't want to do is have any regrets. I don't know that I regret anything because I quit playing at 40 to spend 10 years with my kids. Yeah. So they, so they would know me. I don't regret that. I would never change that ever again. Could I have tried to grind it out, maybe made several more million? Yes, but I wouldn't know my kids and have the relationship with them now. That was way more important to me. Uh, and, you know, fortunately, I've been blessed to be able to work for Golf Channel for eight years, stay in the game, enjoy my grandkids and enjoy those things. Um, but money can spoil it if you're not careful. And I think, you know, you got you to gotta be aware of that. But it's an elite golfer not just juniors, but elite golfers that can separate themselves from that and go that extra mile to be great. Well, I'm going to get you out of here, but before I do that, let's talk a little bit more about just you know, real quickly about your podcast. Only one shot, you know, it's about, you know, elite junior golfers. What right now, I know you've had a lot of college coaches, you've had, um, you know, I've had juniors on there. What right now, and we're going to put links to your podcast on in the show notes of this episode, obviously, what, what excites you right now about the current status of junior golf? And then conversely, what kind of gives you the most maybe pause or concern? Maybe what are some of the, the, the you know, pitfalls that maybe you're seeing some of the kids fall into? Maybe just kind of give me a, a brief overview of what you, uh, what, what your thoughts are right now on, on the state of junior golf. I think there's so many great junior golfers out there. I think there's such great, there's so many good teachers the equipment's out there. My suggestion to whether they're juniors or whatever is when you stick with, stick with the equipment, don't just change because someone's going to give you something. Uh, but I think you just don't get caught up in rankings, uh, be driven to be the best you can. Uh, and, and when you're picking colleges, you know, narrow it down to five. Uh, and, and you, like I said, pick the one you think you'd be most comfortable with. But I think for junior golfers out there, there's so much out there. And just play. Don't stand on the range just to stand on the range. I, I see so many kids doing that, even college kids. They sit on the range. And, uh, are you practicing with any purpose? Or are you just out there hitting balls? Uh, so that is probably more on the concern part of it. But I think when you look at junior golfers, there's so many good ones. And, and, and find a place that – and do it in levels like, hey, I'm doing it my local level, doing it state, doing it regional. You know, go play a Southeastern Junior Golf Tour. Then maybe go play some AJGA. Yeah, yeah. Work it, work it in that in that cycle. Beat the people you're playing with. Then go to the next level. Yep. And I think for parents, be careful. You don't just throw them in, and it's all like, well, he didn't. He's got to be in the AJGA event. This is not a cut to the AJGA. They may not be ready for that. Like my oldest was not ready for that mentally. Uh, but I think the kids are so much better prepared than than I was. We only had a handful of events. You played locally and you played the state. You hope your coach found you, sends you a letter, and you're all excited. Now it's all on Instagram. I would tell every kid this. When you're playing a tournament, be careful of social media. Do not get on Instagram and Twitter and all that crap when you're playing. Do not read the good stuff. Do not read the bad stuff. Because it is a cesspool trying to bring you down because someone has a click that would never say that in your face. And you as a kid, 
tweet responsibly, put the right pictures on there, be smart about it. I know you're trying to promote yourself. That's my concern is they're trying to promote themselves. Now college kids are going to get paid to do things. Be careful who you associate yourself with. Do it because you love the game. Don't do it for the other reasons. There's plenty of time. Stay in college, get your degree, play for four years, unless you're just winning every event. Because pro golf will always be there. It's not the greatest life until you make it. You know, it looks great, but it's a struggle to get there. So for junior golfers, keep working hard. Play a lot of golf. Don't just practice. If you are practicing, practice with a purpose. Don't put that crap on Instagram. Stay off that stuff and just pay attention to what you're out there. That's my advice for anybody. Uh, I try to stay off of it. I do a little bit to promote the, you know, I'll put some grandkid pictures up there, maybe to promote the podcast. But, sure. You know, I try to keep a low profile. I'm not going to get on there and get into the arguments. It, it, and, and there's going to people watch my broadcast are going to say, you're an idiot, you're horrible. <laughs> it's hard. because Nobody likes to be told something like that. But don't read it while you're trying to play. That, no. that, that I've seen too, so many kids do it, and it just it breaks them down. And, and you wonder why kids are struggling. Because they are more worried about the clicks and followers. Uh, and, and I think that's what you got to be aware of. And I think that's for anybody. And now with the college kids being able to get paid, they're trying to do more promotions. Just be aware of what you're chasing. You may not like what you catch. Awesome advice. Um, I love what you just said about the, the junior golfers, because that's something that, you know, here at the back of the range, I'm focused a lot on the amateur game, collegiate game, and, and more, you know, more and more on the juniors. And exactly what you said. It's just, it's really good advice. I will put, as I said, I'm going to put a link to this episode, or uh, put a link to your podcast in the show notes of this episode. Got to have you back on again. I feel like we left a lot on the table, so I got to have you back on again. But, uh, but for now, thanks so much for uh, for stopping by the back of the range, and I'll see you soon. I appreciate you having me on. I got 60 years of story, so we can go on and on and on. But thanks for having me on. And uh, remember, in life or golf, you may have only one shot. You got to make it count. And there you have it. Special thanks to Jim Gallagher Jr. for joining me on this episode here at the Back of the Range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. Enjoy the Ryder Cup, and we'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range.